Welcome to the Mortal Realms, an Age of Sigmar podcast. Grab your hammer so we can clear a path through the chaos and forge our own narratives in the Age of Sigmar. Your allies through the Realm Gate this episode are... I'm Davey, and this evening I came dressed as someone who didn't get tricked into wearing a costume. Uh, I'm Aaron, and Davey, <laughs> I see you did there. Paul, you're next. Oh, okay. All right, I'm Paul, and uh, with all these bad puns flying around, I'm going to say, welcome to the Monastery. And this is Eric, and I looked this up. Seres Diem, Siege the Day! Siege the Day! Siege the Day! In this episode, we are taking a look back at our recent narrative event, All Hallows Siege, from the birth of a saga, delving into the labyrinth and awarding the heroes of the day. I want to welcome Tanya and Brendan to the Mortal Realms. How are you guys doing? Good. How are you? I'm doing great. It's a nice night for recording. Yeah, it's cold outside, so it's perfect to be indoors. It is great. Um, <laughs> it's so, a marvelous night for a podcast. Oh, nice. What's, uh, have you seen that commercial for the Xbox One where the guy's singing, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful day to, to play inside and it's a blizzard out? I have not. Okay, well... Probably because I watch a lot of TV. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, then, uh, so let's uh, introduce uh, Brendan uh, Melnick and uh, Tanya. Can you pronounce your last name for me, Tanya? It's Shibe. Shibe, nice. Um, so, yeah, thank you guys for coming. You guys uh, were a part of the All Hallows Siege in different ways. Um, why don't you guys share a little bit about uh, kind of your hobby, what you do in the hobby, where, you, where we, you know, kind of where you play. And maybe a little bit about uh, what what uh, your involvement or role in All Hallows Siege was. Um, why don't you get started, Brendan? Um, so I'm Brendan Melnick. I'm one of the I'm the co-host on Cubic Shenanigans podcast, where you, where you can normally find me. I'm a co-founder of the Guys from Milwaukee Club and present player for Team New Zealand Midwest Chapter. <laughs> um, I'm primarily a competitive Age of Sigmar player, so this is this was a very uh, different adventure for me. I primarily play uh, Death, and right now I'm working on a Beast of Chaos Nurgle army, so that'll be that'll be nice and different. Very cool. And the and you know, do you want to recap real quick how all of this hoo ha got started? Yeah. So my. Uh, my club, the the guys from Milwaukee, we like to play quote unquote narrative events for the for the big holidays. You know, so we have a uh, we primarily have a big Christmas and a big Halloween type of event, and uh, and they go very poorly. So I reached out to I'm being honest, they, they usually go very poorly. Um, so I reached out to Eric to see if um, his community and my community wanted to join forces to to do a non competitive narrative event. Uh, "Quote unquote," the right way, and um, and you and I happen to both be on the same page of wanting to do a uh, a siege event. So that's uh, that's where all this got started. That was gosh in like May or something like that. Yeah, it was coming pretty close off of Adepticon, I think, um, yeah, or maybe a little bit after that. Um, but yeah, it, it was it was definitely crazy how you're like, hey, we want to do narrative, and I think I'd been talking with um, uh, the, you know the the rest of the cast here about you know a siege event how cool would that be and it was just uh serendipitous really um and i really i do appreciate that your that your uh club likes to play narrative with teeth i don't think there's anything wrong with that uh 
but we'll definitely talk about how we took a different approach to it and yeah, we have a we have a bad ability at gauging everyone's expectation. <laughs> um, people usually leave our narrative, our quote unquote narrative events, mad at each other. Um, <laughs> no, I think you saw that a little bit at the at the last table between Dave, Isaiah, and I. But you know, we were we were just goofing around. <laughs> um, so then, uh, Tanya, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, your involvement in the hobby and, and what brought you to All Hallows Siege? Um, so I've probably been playing this game about mm, 13 years. Uh, started out painting and then kind of own a few different armies. Uh, right now focused a lot of my Flesh Eater course. That's what I brought to All Hallows Siege. Uh, I have a Kislev army that needs to get rebased and I don't know exactly what's going to happen with that. It'll be a lot of fun, but it will not be competitive. Uh, I primarily play competitive lists but, well, not competitive list. I play in competitive environments. Um, so it was really, really awesome to see kind of a narrative event come out. Uh, working with Steve and doing a lot of the Holy Wars and Holy Hammer stuff, uh, you know, we, we delve in the narrative, but I don't usually get to participate a lot in the actual events. Um, mostly just kind of some of the behind-the-scenes stuff. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, you know, um, Steve has some of that has some of that environment too, where the Holy Hammer events also bring out some competitiveness uh, and some nails too. So nothing wrong with it, uh, but, but looking for something a little bit different, I'd say. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, all house opened up a door for that. It's nice. And uh, Tanya uh, took on uh, the, the martyr's role um, <laughs> of the attacker warlord. Uh, so thank you again for, for taking on that. Uh, what was your initial impression kind of going into that? Uh, I don't know. I've never really taken on a role like that before, so it was kind of an interesting um, opportunity. Um, I don't know. I guess I'm just not much for telling everybody what they need to do in their games, but uh, it was it was a lot of fun. A lot of fun. Cool. Cool. Well, thank you guys again for joining us. Um, and uh, if anybody wants to, so we're going to get into the story phase. Talk a little bit about the story. Um, you know, it's not a book, so it's not going to be super long. Uh, and uh, famous then, nice words. Yeah, then we're, <laughs> we'll get into uh, talking more about the campaign, the nuts and bolts of it, how the day ran, etc. Um, if you want to go and check out any photos of it, um, you can go to Facebook, go to the All Hallows Siege uh, Facebook page, and we've got some posts there. Uh, you can also see some of the AOS Neon page if you're a member there, um, and uh, you can you can take a look there, see see some of the tables. Um, some of the shenanigans going on and, uh, and take a peek. But you'll have to listen. You'll have to, to settle for hearing about it and imagining it in your own head. So everybody talk it up a little bit. Like make Describe it cooler than it was, and, and nobody will know the difference. Sure, yeah, there were a like, hundred people there. It was amazing. <laughs> we were all 10 pounds lighter for some reason. I didn't even know how you got those tables to float. That was just, that was just my... I like you guys. All right. Uh, why don't we get going? To the story phase. In the story phase, uh, we delve into the stories, characters, creatures, and environments of the Coat Monastery. So, obviously, I spent a lot of time ta talking and reading and explaining what this uh, story was. So, I'm going to pass it to one of uh, anybody else uh, who wants to try and summarize what the kind of premise of this story was. You better do it right. <laughs> this is a test. Anybody want to take a shot? My summary of it. I got it. Yeah, do it. So the Coat Monastery uh, was code for the knowledge of all things monastery. 
So it was a monastery where all the grand alliances would send people in order to seek knowledge and to seek balance. And once every millennia, I think is what you said, uh, there is a ritual where they uh, have this ritual uh, to maintain the balance between all the grand alliances. And this particular instance of the ritual, the deaf faction had decided that they wanted to interrupt this ritual to try and disrupt that balance to gain more power. There you go. That's the that's it in a nutshell. So the, the co- <laughs> I'm in a nutshell. <laughs> Get in this bloody big nutshell. Uh, so yeah, the the impetus of of gathering us together. One of the things Brendan and I wanted to do is pit um, death versus everybody else because uh, Soul Wars, you know, is the theme of AOS right now. Uh, there's a lot of death players in his neck of the woods. He and I are both uh, death players, and and you know, selfishly we wanted to give death some big spotlight time. Um, and so we, we, we kind of story-wise pitted the two together. And part of it too is when you're playing narrative and teams and that sort of stuff and wanting people to be able to bring what they want, how do you create a narrative that, that kind of does that? And so there's, there's this uh, mysterious treasure. Um, I put out a video um, early on that was these different uh, monks going out to these different warlords, these different generals, and pleading their case to come back to the monastery to protect, to defend, uh, because there was a big death army coming. And so, uh, you know, this idea that there's this balance that needs to be held around this knowledge of all things, whatever that is. And if it breaks, if one of these alliances gains control um, or is overpowers the other three for some reason, um, they can gain control of this uh, knowledge of all things, and that would be disastrous. Um I didn't release all of the story that I was going to release because I think we're going to learn if we do some additional events, we'll learn some more of that. Um, but uh, one of the things that was also a part of it is the the monks themselves play a lot of politics because there's this sense of, on one hand, they all have to be there to balance it because they don't want anybody else to gain control. At the same time, they're looking for slip-ups and they're looking for ways, that, you know, can I tip it so drastically in my favor? Um you know, or in my alliance's favor, that we can gain the upper hand, right? So it's not enough to like just wobble the wobble the the scales. You need to be able to flip them. Um, and so all of these uh, generals uh, of all the other the the death generals came marching to the walls, and uh, many other generals came to defend the walls, um, taking up different positions, uh, uh, applying their skills to uh, the different ways of defending and attacking, etc. Um, that's the gist of it. Does anybody else have anything to add? Uh, any more to, to bring to that? Uh, Davey, tell me about the character that you uh, embodied or exhibited uh, that fateful night. There was some discussion that uh, the organizers would uh, play as one of the monks, and I was going to be the chaos monk. Eric showed us pictures of the mask he was going to wear and all the stuff he was going to do with it. I was like, all right, well, I'll step on my game. So I came face painted with a cloak and uh, crazy hair. And I was the only one dressed up. So uh, yeah. I was a slanish chaos monk and uh, was uh, trying to offer tempting uh, lures to uh, people uh, offering benefit. Gotta get you arrested, by the way. Um, <laughs> thank you. And honestly, to, to be honest, I wasn't sure you were dressed up. So that, that was my defense. <laughs> No, it looked awesome, and I felt terrible. I'm very glad. I'm very glad to hear that. <laughs> yeah. Some consolation. Um, so, um, 
you know, we, we came up with this story to, uh, so part of the, then the, what was happening during the day was uh, the siege was about the death, trying to break into the castle, grab the control of the, the co-at uh, and everybody else trying to keep death from getting control of the co-at. Um, but with that infighting with the politics, um, who knows what was going to happen. And maybe even if death didn't come out in the end, maybe somebody else would have. Um, that's story phase. Let's jump in to the campaign phase. And we're going to get into, like I said, we're going to get into the people. We're going to get into uh, kind of the event, um, all that kind of stuff, the, the nuts and bolts. Um, Brendan, we talked a little bit at the beginning about what you, you kind of your goals when you brought it up, um, you know, wanting to be able to, I guess, just bring a different level or different type of narrative, uh, kind of take away some of the, the competitiveness um, is it primarily because you wanted an event where people didn't leave yelling at each other or <laughs> can you tell us more about kind yeah, of things so, that you would hope to happen? So I, so I, I have big ambitions for the state of Wisconsin, obviously. <laughs> um, the governor as, as your future governor. <laughs> I'd vote for you. 2020. So, uh, but more seriously, what I'd really like is for, uh, we have three primary communities in uh, in the state of Wisconsin, the Milwaukee group, the Madison group, and the, the group in the Fox Valley area. And I'd like to uh, have those groups be a little more connected as one of the primary things uh, that, that we're doing. And I saw this as a really good opportunity to offer something to my group of, uh, of players, um, something different that they're not used to, but... Um, at the same time, connect with a community that we are trying to have a have a stronger relationship with in the uh, in the Madison community. Now we've we've spent some time with Kenny and Sean going to their events at Pegasus, but this was it's not a tournament. Uh, this is a different experience, and in at least my interpretation of the of the Madison crew is that this was more your guys's style of playing. That it's it's more storytelling focused and more uh more narrative based and that's something that our our group could definitely use uh, a refresher course on from time to time no yeah it's just something we tell people mainly just because we're not that good at the game (laughs) (laughs) i used to be good at one point i swear those who can't compete narrative (laughs) um no i mean i would say i mean part of it is and and for me when you brought it up uh i I met you first at Adepticon, and uh, you know Paul. Oh no, he's frozen. <laughs> oh, he's gone. And it ruined him. Frozen you met you at no, I him. broke Eric. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still here. Um, can you hear me? Yeah. Now we can. Okay. We can. All right. Uh, so when I come in and met you, like we had had some people from Madison came down to Adepticon, of course, but not together, and not like disparate across different systems. There's a lot of 40k players in Madison. Uh, 40k is a bigger kind of scene here um and so there was you know one and i came and met you and, and i learned that just at the team event you had like eight teams um, oh, we we came with 10 10 teams uh ten teams. so just to have like one event with that many people and you had more people in the wings you know um it seemed like so um i was excited because you guys do have such a mature scene for only being aos you know three years old and, and we're in Madison, we've got a lot of people that play, but we're not so cohesive. We don't have like one place that everyone plays. We've got five different stores to choose from and we're 
we're spread all over in temperament and and location, even in our small space. Seven stores, actually. Seven stores. Oh, oh. It's you'd think it would be nice, but it's hard. It's hard. <laughs> it's hard. Um, uh, There's too many problems. places to play. Oh for, no! First world problem. Drive <laughs> myself to sleep on my big pile of here. <laughs> um, so I was look. I was looking forward to connecting with you, Brendan, and your crew, and uh, you know, just yeah, like you said, like learning a little bit about who plays and 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 how to get get people playing more things. Um, so and and then I had never run a narrative event other than kind of some you know game nights for for these hoo has. Um, you know, I keep using that word, man. Yeah, that's <laughs> take something out. Yahoo's better. Better, <laughs> closer, warmer. Um, so, uh, like, you know, I'd been a part of the Neo group, uh, building out Coalescence, um, had worked on a couple of other things and, you know, et cetera. So I've kind of put my head towards it, but not my hands towards it. Um, and so, uh, and I definitely found out uh, kind of the, the difference in how much work it is to put together. Um just kind of, uh, I guess, at the outstart there. Um, well, I guess taking a look at this, we've we've done one event. Um, I don't want to get into like hopes and dreams and and you know positives, negatives yet. Why don't we talk a little bit about how we chose to uh, set up the day? Um, why did we go with a one day event instead of like a two day event? Um, I think what it came down to was you and I believed we couldn't actively sell a two day product without any amount of uh, equity that folks could rely on. Yeah, yeah. Like we're kind of doing something. It's the first time uh, we're starting out. How could we prove it yet? I mean, you you're coming with you you whip out the events like crazy, um, good events that people really like coming to. So I was definitely confident that and somebody would confused for somebody. I <laughs> I only host Crew City Brawl and and one dayers for people. Well, maybe that's it. Maybe I'm just here. It's the hype. Yeah. the hype is working. It's 24-7, 365 days a year hype about uh, a two-day event in uh, May this year. Yeah. <laughs> so I, you know, I think, but I think you're right. Is is we're trying to prove it, like that we're have we can we can pull off a narrative event that we can have fun doing it. The people are going to have fun there, um, and uh, and that we'll be able to, I guess, do it again uh, if we want to. No spoilers. No spoilers. Um. So we did we did one day, which meant I, at one point I tried to see if we could fit in four stages to this thing. It was bold. It was it was bold. We ended up knocking it down to three, um, and uh, we took this idea. You know, a siege. If you're if you're just at the walls, um, you know it's it's kind of like you're not going to want to be at. We didn't want to do a mega battle where we're just at the walls for six hours or or eight hours. You know, pounding at them until they come down. We wanted the things to move kind of quickly and have some dramatic curve. So we we started with um, so in the in the um, general's handbook, I think 2017, they had some siege rules, and they had this mechanic where basically before each turn, you choose a tactic. You either um, pound on the walls, you try and starve them out by stopping supplies, or you try and dig under um, to kind of get uh, get um, kind of behind their lines. And I. Through a little bit of research, found that like digging holes under walls was a thing. Like you just do it to like structurally ruin them. That sounds um, pretty sappy to me. Mm. Uh, <laughs> so 
So instead of just having a mechanic that we rolled on to see whether or not this tactic was happening, either tearing down walls or um, you know stopping supplies, uh, we created a mission for each of those tactics and then asked the warlords uh, to uh, kind of, uh, I guess we should talk about that real quick in just a second. We asked the warlords to kind of assign preferences or assign resources to each of those different tactics. So the first game was just kind of like this resource grab or this positioning grab. Um, what did you guys, I wasn't sure if you guys were sold on that first at first um, as far as having a, like, you know, three different um, scenarios for that first stage and not everyone was going to get to play all of them. Um, do you want to, do you want to talk about like, like how the warlords played in, to, into that decision? Or yeah. What their role was in that? Yeah. So we decided to not only have uh, the, so we split it into two teams. I think, I don't know. I think, I think teams is often the way to go with, um, with narrative. I'm, I'm, I think that there's probably room and I know other, other you know, like raw, I think is just individuals. Like you're playing your own story as a hero. I don't, I don't remember there being teams there. Um, for, for Aethermy, they had two guilds, two so guilds, okay. teams of that. Um, and I think they had a, some similar mechanic last year, but I don't remember exactly. Yeah. Um, so whenever, you know, when we're thinking about narrative and, and through different conversations I've had, there's always like trying to find these signals that, that kind of stamp out some of the over-competitiveness or like just change the, the, the motivation of, of the games from solo winning to team, you know, team winning is one of those things. So, you know, Brendan, when we were talking about like, how do we temper some of that, that you know, or, or dull some of those teeth, right? If you're playing for a team, then you know your your wins and losses matter less as an individual um, than they do for you know as as a whole, right? Um, and in this case, we wanted to uh, kind of create this weird dynamic between all the players, where yeah, they're working on a team, but there's um, enough. There could be some reasons why you would want to work against your team's goals or against your um, kind of what your overarching goal is. Um, there's, there's, there's some natural friction to everybody being from a totally different grand alliance. Mm-hmm. Did we? Did, what did you guys think about that in in terms of how that worked with with the teams? Different grand alliances working together or working apart? Uh-huh. Uh, it worked okay. I think it's um, it can feel narratively hard to sell. It's going to be the challenge in any kind of uh, bring and play um, sort of thing where. You know, I, I know down in Austin, uh, when I was there, the 40K guys would do this, like, big thing uh, for, like, the Bad Dab War or whatever, and they'd plan it for months and months, and, you know, in advance, everyone would know they're taking this, and so they had they had their narrative working all the way from before. Here, we're uh, looking for people to just kind of bring, you know, make their own internal narrative, but not necessarily coming, having relationships between their armies already established. Now, some people took the initiative and did did some of that. Uh, a, a little before on the day of, which was cool. Um, but uh, it, I know for me, it felt like a little bit of a, I don't know, uphill battle to think like, okay, like how, how can this be constructed in a way that doesn't just feel like, whoop, you know, uh, we got shaken up in a tumbler and tossed out here. Um, and uh, if one side had been purely death, that might have, although, you know, it was, we ended up with not enough death players to field the one side. So actually both sides were ended up being uh a grab bag of alliances. So um, I think, I think it worked well. I think it's, uh, but it's definitely something you have to go in with an idea of how you're going to manage, I would say. Um, yeah. And that's the whole reason Davey doesn't play Rome Wars with us. 
<laughs> well, I think, you know, it's, it's a matter of stakes, right? I mean, if you, what would you make you pair up with your mortal enemy? Um, and so the question oh, with the narrative yeah. <laughs> to do a podcast, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, like, and, and so that's the question. One of the kind of tests of the narrative is like, uh, you know, did you, did we create enough of a narrative to sell that? Right. That, um, chaos and, and order would fight next to each other um, while, you know, kicking each other in the shins, um, et cetera. Um, well, I think there's an interesting point here um, is that when you're playing a narrative event, you're not looking at the grand alliances and saying there are these strong dividing lines, right? There are these walls there. Uh, it's not kind of that event, right? You're not supposed to look at your own army and say, this is my army that takes objective. This is my unit that takes objectives. This is my unit that kills other things, right? You're supposed to look at your army in a different way. And I think to a certain extent, you look at your army in the larger realms in a different way as well, right? And I, I agree with Davey. Like in an ideal world, if you had half the players have death armies and half the players have something else, that would be amazing. Like if you could figure it out so that you could have so many order players, so many chaos players, you know, like, and so many death players and make it a nice and balanced thing. That sounds really good, uh, but from my opinion, it usually works out that if you look at history, the narrative doesn't usually work out that way, right? This is the plan of what's going in, but then this army doesn't show up, or this army decides to show up instead that, that nobody anticipated, right? Like To me, that immediately starts building the narrative to begin with before the event even starts, because you, you're figuring out why these armies would battle together. You're, it's forcing the player to look at their army as something other than the thing that wins games. And I, to me, that's a really interesting dynamic. Um, and like I said, in an ideal world, you would be able to force that narrative and you'd be like, hey, you bring this army, you bring this army, and this is how we're going to do, and everybody would show up and the numbers would be great. Um, but when we're playing with players from a local league, right, like it doesn't necessarily work out that way. So for me, it didn't bother me as much. Um, obviously, it would have been amazing to have half the players bring death armies and see this whole swarm of death across the board. Um, but I think that's also one of the compromises you have by doing a smaller event. Um, you can't demand that people do this kind of thing. And there are events on, out there which fortunately do allow people to demand it. Like uh, when you do, um, when you do uh, at Nova, they demand that people bring in a U unit, and they do stuff like that. So it's an interesting dynamic um, and an interesting uh, play for narrative events. But definitely something to keep in mind. Either way, uh, I mean, narrative can go a long way. Like you, could, you know, can you tell the right story? Can you shape the right um, box to make it all fit? Um, and and sometimes that you need to see that on the table for it to work in your head. Um, mm -hmm. And sometimes you know a, a little snippet in, on the side of a book, you know. Uh, you know, makes it all work. Um, but, but that's the balance. So I definitely get that. Um, Tanya, what did you think? Um, are you, uh, are you here, Tanya? Yeah, I am. Awesome. Sorry about that. Um, what did you think about the kind of the three different scenarios from the warlord perspective, having to choose, do I go, uh, well, first, I guess of the having a, a not full death uh, kind of uh, team being able to attack this, the um, walls and then, um, kind of having to choose between three different kind of tactics in, in deploying your resources. Um, it was, it's pretty interesting. You know, you would think that 
having all death would be perfect for that, but I, I felt like the Skaven edition and then the um, mixed beasts, mixed alliance list we had um, was a pretty interesting storyline too. So it kind of made a much, much more well-woven, um, I don't know, kind of an attack story than um, I think maybe was true of our defending uh, counterparts. Um it's... Ooh, shade being thrown. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I don't. I don't mean like that. But are you saying your narrative was better than their narrative? Um, I'm thinking maybe it was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not to offend anybody on the uh, the Grand Alliance mixed team over there. Yeah. Um, no, chips in the middle of the table. All offense. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um... Yeah, I mean, you guys are used to making everybody mad at the end of narrative. See, right. Yeah. This is this is that Brandon. bet, Brendan. Brendan, this here is why I think we've discovered why the Milwaukee crew. Is ending in fights like this, you're instigating it. That's not unreasonable. <laughs> <laughs> so tell so, us more, Tanya. So um, some of the lists didn't really give a lot of opportunities for certain types of like kind of positive things to help with some of the different scenarios. So um, like I think Christian had a hard time coming up with anything for skirmish. I don't think anybody had quite planned for skirmish um, outside of myself, and then. Um, you know, we didn't have much in the way of artillery and things that could have been beneficial in certain locations over other armies um, being beneficial in those locations. So we kind of had to switch it up a little bit here and there and, and just kind of play off of what strengths we did have. Um, I had, uh, had a good, good crew of wall smashers, um, <laughs> did a really great job with that. And then I was just trying to fly around in the skies and, well, I saw how that ended. Yeah. yeah. So the yeah you had a good spread um uh you had you put quite a few resources against that wall smashing in the first uh first round with uh, christian and his mixed beast and brendan uh smashing against walls uh with his death and then round two everybody was up against walls um kind of everybody met there to to kind of take a push to try and get past and get into the keep and uh during that second game we had um Everybody against the wall except for you, Tanya. You and um, who was on the who was the uh, uh, Mark, uh, Mark Redcheck? Yeah, with his three um, blood blood thirsters. <laughs> How many? Four. Four blood thirsters. Oh man! Technically, um, three blood thirsters and one greater blood thirster from four. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, so that was the second phase. Everybody against the wall. Um, Brendan, how did you guys? How did you like the actual like smashing walls? You did a lot of wall smashing. Oh, I did uh, so how much did wall. how did that work in in a siege where wall smashing is kind of the signature? How did that work for you? Um, so what Christian and I found in the first game is that the mechanic we had in the pack for needing to roll a five up to blow up the wall uh, segments was a lot more successful than we probably intended in the pack writing. Um, <laughs> And that it was nigh impossible for uh, any units to rip down the wall. So oh. I pulled Eric aside between game one and two, and we made a made a quick change to make it more narrative. In that you probably want the walls actually getting ripped down by units as opposed to them magically falling down to the uh, uh, the walls of Jericho and the you know the Ark being walked around the monastery and then then just melting. Um, no, it was it was fun. I uh, I squared off against the Deepkin player for three straight games, and I think I didn't realize that. That's funny. 
Oh, no. I, I think I think he's sick of me. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, and for me, it was an interesting narrative thing because I was playing all night hunt. So narratively, I could care less about the walls. <laughs> it's true. You saw well, right I think through their tactics, didn't you? I'm sorry, it was coffin. What did you say? I said you saw right through their tactics. Oh, I definitely did, and I saw right through the walls too. And I, I did. I didn't care. Um, yeah. So it it prevented it presented a really interesting issue for me because one of them was the first objective or the first scenario was to batter down the walls. I didn't care because I could float through them. The second one was to tunnel under them. I didn't care because it was faster to go through them. And the third tunnel was to attack the supply caravan. And I was like, okay, well, you know, I'm I'm part of Lady Olinda's force, so yeah, that will cause misery. So let's do that one instead. <laughs> and so it, it was an interesting thing because I was playing pure death with the death force and i literally there was no narrative reason for me to attack the monastery itself uh based on the scenarios that we had so now you struck an interesting deal with your uh opponent second what do you you say interesting kind of made a truce did you not well i just wanted to get into the the monastery yeah and my opponent didn't want to fight and he was going to kill me so i said okay you let me into the monastery, and I'll let you go past. And it worked out fine. I mean, I, I only lost my general, and that was pretty much it. So, Who did it work out fine for, I might ask? <laughs> well, this was, this was interesting because this is some of the – I mean, and I knew Paul was going to be able to pull something uh, narrative and, and, you know. This wasn't my idea. This was Isaac's idea. Well, <laughs> you were getting Isaiah. Sorry, Isaiah. Yeah, thank you. Um. Because one, I mean, all the stories of Night Haunt that we've read, right, is some dude uh-huh. coming to a wall going, hey, if you let me in, yep. you know, I'll promise you something, blah, 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 blah. So, uh-huh. I mean, there's something very themely about being a Night Haunt and just being able to con your way into the wall. Spoken like yeah. a true narrative expert. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and, and two, Isaiah had a ton of army left. in yeah. The biggest army left in turn uh, in stage three um, because nobody knocked him down a peg. Yeah. Well, what what you don't know <laughs> is that we did play the first round. Yeah. And I had the chance to take out his bloodthirster, and I didn't do it by one wound. Ah. And nothing, like he had taken out the things that could actually do the damage to his army, and then he offered me the truce. And I was like, well, since you're going to obliterate everything else in my army, and the, either it's to be obliterated or to make my objective, well, yes, I'm going to take this truce, because then I will make my objective there you go so i could have lost everything and gained nothing in return but that would have been a bit of a pyrrhic victory so narratively i decided let him go it's fine i like it 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 was fine it was all fine no i like it because one i mean yeah like you said you didn't care about the walls Mm -hmm. you also weren't there to like maim and kill and and try and win against bloodthirsters no i just wanted to interrupt the ritual there you go so i liked it well and the the fun thing was actually that um, Isaiah and I still had to play out the rest of the turns and act like we were still playing the game so that other people didn't get suspicious. So we were just moving the models around and be like, oh, we're going to talk here for a minute and then we're going to go and taunt everybody else for the rest of the game because that's what you told us to do. So, you know, there was a bit of play acting there as well. And here, Tanya was worried about the rats the whole time. <laughs> yeah. Well, but that was the narratively <laughs> what happened in the first scenario was that i ambushed the supply caravan and i destroyed it but then somehow it managed to survive 
Now, because of that, I had to assume that Tanya had betrayed me, right? I achieved my objective, yet somehow I failed. <laughs> That's so, quite meta. That's quite meta. I didn't quite trust that Tanya was on my side. So I didn't have full loyalty on her side when it came to having a truce. So I was like, okay, why not? We might as well just walk past each other because my objective is just to disrupt the ritual. I don't care what my warlord wants. This is what I want because I want to cause the most misery. Tanya, tell us a little bit about um, working with, uh, with the rats and having them as allies. That was an interesting uh, it, aspect yeah. to your team. It was, it was really interesting. And I mean, I was kind of always suspicious from the beginning there um, about whether or not Adam was going to betray us. And it, I mean, even at the end, I wasn't totally sure that he wasn't going to try to somewhere in there. Try to he, he he actually stayed pretty uh pretty loyal to to everything that uh, we were trying to work for. So it was actually as far as you know. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. That's true. Up until now, I didn't know that Paul was uh, scheming against me. So no. I wasn't scheming against you. I just wasn't scheming with you. That's well, a difference. Uh, I will say the, the he may have played us rather than you. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, because I think uh, a couple of us gave him some some boons early on in the first round to help him out, um, and I specifically gave one to him uh, to offer to you, uh, Tanya, as a kind of a pledge. Hmm. Um, but he decided to keep it for himself. I but he, I told him to give it to you to you know to to make you feel like he's more loyal. <laughs> so I don't so. He managed to, to fool both of us, really. Those rats. Those rats got their cake and they ate it. <laughs> but uh, so that was a fun part for, for that. You know, Davey, Brendan, um, did you guys uh, pick out any things in those first couple rounds? Any, any players or any opportunities to kind of step in as a monk and, uh, you know, play favorites? Well, uh, early on because we not only did we have these crazy narrative things, but we also were asymmetrical as far as the board. So Paul was a, on a two V one board. Yeah. And so I was making some plays to try and balance some of those out. Um, and uh, walked by, I looked like just by the nature of, you know, skirmish has got its own skewed things. Tanya was kind of stacked against it. Uh, and so I tried to think of like, what would be cool thematic about ghouls in the tunnels, what they'd be pouring in from everywhere. Uh, and that's something that they get in the, the main uh, rules, but uh, they don't really get to see it in skirmish because of the way the units work and such. Um, and uh, so, you know, gave gave Tanya, hey, okay, you can you can spend a command point to bring uh, extra ghouls on, uh, just to just to kind of give something balance. You know, we we designed these scenarios; um, they're never going to be the most balanced in the world. So, just trying to find ways to keep some of the games fun or interesting. Um, was kind of what I was wielding the ability for. Take any actions, Brendan? I mean, I was a player, so I didn't get the chance to oh. hand out boons and benefits. You know, I was trying to help make the, the event less asymmetrical. What do you mean you didn't get the chance to? That was the perfect chance. You could have given yourself boons. <laughs> How did this not happen? No, I did. I did forget. Sorry about that, Brandon. That you jumped in to to help make that less or more symmetrical. Yeah. Um, if only you'd brought a fightier list, huh? My my list was very <laughs> fighting. I <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> I I very genuinely struggled writing something to 
to match what I was expecting the the narrative level to be. And my teammates were definitely on the same page I was. My opponents, <laughs> not too so much. Yeah. You didn't think that? You didn't think that? You, no, you didn't think four bloodthirsters was, I, was narrative played, enough? Yeah, I played 12 Morsar Guard and three Ishlayan at 1,500 points in game two. <laughs> and that's one of the things that I think as we were designing this, trying to be able to accommodate imbalance, not because one, I mean, we intentionally put asymmetry into even the matchups, like the potential for 2v1, but that was meant to be a little more rare if the teams are even then it's just based on chance whether or not you get 2v1, right? You get a lucky draw or you get you you outsmart your opponent. Defenders had one more player, which meant that they could get 2v1 guaranteed yeah. on one table. And that was that was a mistake on our part to yeah. to let that happen. Um, well, and I, I think there's a there's a, a thing you missed, a mechanic that you missed here, which is that um when you have oh, the warlord, really? the warlord <laughs> would bid on which table they wanted to send the players to. So the warlord always had the option to forfeit forfeit one of the missions, but um, they could send as many warlords as they wanted to to any specific table. So there was this pre-game matchup, this pre-game posing, as it were, where you were deciding which one was going to happen. Which is why I was like, "Well, I don't want to do the walls. I don't want to do the sapping because that doesn't fit my narrative." So send me to do this mission. So I ended up doing that one because I asked. Excuse me, I asked for it. Uh, but that was also part of the day, was that you were assigned by your warlord to go to these tables, and then you had the chance to say yes or no. And that was also part of the narrative. So you're right, there was a chance for it to be imbalanced. Um, but this comes up to an interesting point for me. When I'm playing a narrative game, imbalance does not break the game because the narrative is about the story. Mm-hmm. And so when I was playing against two armies versus my one army that doesn't make a bad game because it's not about winning or losing. It's about the narrative itself, which actually made it more interesting for me in game two when I decided that obviously my warlord had betrayed me because I went up against two armies and even though I won, I ended up losing, right? Like that makes it interesting and that's what makes a narrative event different. It doesn't matter how competitive the list is of the person you're playing against. It doesn't matter how well you play against the player. It matters how you interpret what happened and make that into the part of the story that your army has going forward. To me, that's, and I know that's personal, but like to me, that's how narrative is a lot more interesting to play games in other than if you're playing competitive because competitive is a black and white situation. You've won, you've lost, or you've tied, right? (laughs) But that's all that matters. But a narrative you win by playing the game and the game decides your narrative because it tells the story of what's happened to you. I think one of the things in some of those where the, another, another thing that can help with that imbalance that I don't know that we had enough of, because even if you lose, you know, you get, again, in any objective play, you can get beat like on, on kill points or whatever and still score your objectives and still potentially win the game even if you've lost the battle if that were uh as it Mm -hmm. were um or whatever um i think there could have been more uh because so we try to create um, a lot of different things to achieve that Mm -hmm. weren't necessarily dependent we're actually where winning the game was the least sometimes the least important part of it you know whether it be you know getting somebody off the board on the other side to get a spy point 
whether it be uh, battering down a wall to get, um, you know, a batter token. Um, you know, there's, there was a lot of things to accomplish if you chose to accomplish those other things. Um, so in that case of the caravan, if, if that was the one thing to do, and I, th I think there were a couple other things, but I think there could have been more things to achieve than just that main objective in order to mitigate if you've got, um, or in a couple of scenarios when it was two versus one, the two players had to change how they put their objectives on the table to make it mm -hmm. different for, you know, uh, harder for them to just sit on them and defend them. Um, and so maybe more things like that could have helped that imbalance that with the imbalance of players becomes an imbalance of objectives or something to that effect. And it's another mechanic uh, I don't think we've explained yet is that you had a primary objective in every scenario, but then you also had a list of secondary objectives. And those secondary objectives didn't necessarily help you win uh, the game, but they did allow you to do other things in games going forward. Um, so there was a, a whole page in the back of the packet where you filled in how many, for example, batter tokens, which Brendan obviously got a ton of, or spy tokens, where, yeah, where you got to go off the other side of the board, so therefore you got a spy token. Um, there were a lot of other interesting things to do besides playing the actual game itself that would affect the way that you deployed and um, played the games. Um, so that was another interesting mechanic uh, that was in there. Um, and then the other thing is, if, if you don't mind, Eric, I'd like to talk about uh, game one where we kind of yeah. play this. So we played the scenario and it was me versus two other armies and I got first turn and I swarmed through and I won the objective turn one before the other two armies got a chance to play, right? And so we talked about it and we're like, well, this doesn't make it fun for the other two players, right? Because it doesn't seem fair. So we changed the objective, right? And in the normal game, if the first player wins turn one, too bad. First player game wins turn one and that's all there is to it. But in the narrative game, who cares if you change the objective, right? So I won the game turn one based on the scenario, but then we changed the scenario. So then I didn't win, but then that just makes a, a real interesting narrative to go forward, right? Are so, you talking about how you guys read the scenario incorrectly? And played it incorrectly, yeah. Yeah, is that is that how you want to do it? Okay, just checking. Well, well we <laughs> read the scenario incorrectly, and then we all agreed to play the scenario incorrectly, and then when the game was one turn one, then we were like, oh, well, we need to talk again because the scenario didn't work the way we thought it was. And we didn't want to start the game over. You know, like, it's, the, it's this whole thing where in a normal tournament game, you'd be like, okay, well, we have to figure this out and we have to start over, right? But in a narrative game, you don't have to start over because it's not about winning or losing. It's about the story that you create playing the game. And so, so we changed the scenario. Yeah. It, one of our one of our balancing uh, decisions that we made as GMs early on too was there's gonna be things that we have to call on the mm -hmm. spot, and uh, there's gonna be stuff that we have to make a decision on because the pack wasn't clear or we didn't conceive of this thing happening or that thing happening. Um, and uh, when those opportunities to create something new with the player, hey, let's go this way or that way, um, that GM and player would shout out siege of the day. And everybody would uh, know that you know some decision was made, and uh, it, it helped with things, uh, and uh, or we had to you know do something on the fly, and then um, uh, you know everybody was kind of excited to to kind of. Uh, I think that added a little bit to the again another one of those things or signals 
that you're that reading the rules and playing the rules and you know beating the other person by the rules wasn't the only thing like wasn't the everybody's main goal right yeah um so you know brendan how did i mean again coming from a very tournament oriented very um you know uh, first second and third place how did you feel you or or some of the other players that you that are from uh, milwaukee or that you play with how did that feel um so I think it's important to note that I'm very much a rules traditionalist in the sense that my belief system in regards to rules, and I'm a quality engineer in the real world, so <laughs> rules, are, rules are what I do and live in, um, that if you follow the rules and play by all the rules, you will have fun. So like what Paul is talking about... That's <laughs> scary. Like, exactly. That's a, that's a very foreign <laughs> concept for me, and... I think our community has a lot of, you know, rules traditionalists in, yeah. uh, in our midst. So I didn't really get the chance to sit down with Isaiah and Mark and ask them their feelings on how all of the, uh, what, what I would normally deem shenanigans went. Um, but the, but I did have the chance to talk to Dave and, and, you know, he, he quite enjoyed the, a lot of the flexibility that was, that was allowed, um, in the midst of the event, the, the, the ability to be creative as you went along. And I, I definitely bought into it more and more as the, as the event went on, which, you know, yay, uh, I did it. <laughs> um, We're proud of you, Brennan. Yeah. Thank you. Cause I, I, in the, in the last game, I bargained my whole army to summon a purple sun. <laughs> you did. You did. Like you try and kill Isaiah's bloodthirster. <laughs> You're like, I ain't winning this. I want to take my toys and go home. Can I make them turn them into a, a purple sun? <laughs> yeah. Well, and uh, Brendan, playing Mark game one and game three, I can tell you that like during game one, there was definitely talked about this is the way the rules go. And during game three, there was also talked about this is the way the rules go. And in fact, one of the things that I had asked to happen in game three, he's like, but that breaks one of the core rules of the game. And I'm like, yeah, but this is narrative gaming. So there are no core rules of the game. It's how do we best make the story happen? Well, I think I, you and I would differ on our maybe our, our core ethos on there because I sit, oh, I kind of sit in the middle of, of what Paul's talking about, what Brennan's talking about. I think where you can illustrate and make a rule clear, you should. Um, because it's, mm -hmm. and, and those rules don't have to be, um, again, they can be unfair or, they, you know, it's like, it's like uh, mechanics that can be wonky, but it's the rules, right? Um, yep. And and if designed well, they're both narrative and easy to follow, right? Mm -hmm. And you shouldn't have to rely just on making things up. Um, I think, especially in a dice rolling game, like you you want to have enough controls. And and one of those things that I wanted to do with with this warlord and and stuff was to create some crunchiness. And and by that I mean some heavy rules like crunching uh, to be strategic or to be like sneaky or or tactical or whatever. Um, and to have that be a role, uh, I, I don't know that I quite achieved that. Um, you know, Brendan, if you'd had a chance to play Warlord, maybe that would have been, um, I don't know if that would have been better or worse for you because you've got less control over what all these individuals are doing when you're trying to be strategic. Um, but, uh, Tanya, I guess, tell us a little bit about your thoughts on, I guess, the, the kind of some of the open, open endedness or the collaborative, uh, rules making that were on the fly. Maybe we lost her. Yeah, we might have lost her. I think she she's muted. So there, there's that. Yeah. All right. Sorry about um, that. All right. Cool. <laughs> I, I think uh, the 
I tend to be more kind of like how Brennan is, uh, you know, rules is written is, is easy to understand and follow most of the time. And that's kind of what I stick to, but I don't think that, um, you know, any of the modified rules made any big changes, um, you know, that were, were highly impactful as far as making the event work and making the games work, uh, well. So I thought, and some of them were just playing goofy and fun. So there's nothing wrong with that. So tell us about, I mean, one, one aspect of, of what we're talking about, kind of where rules can be fun, uh, but not, um, how do you put it, not be necessarily match play uh, friendly, is you know, your second game playing in the skies um, and affecting all the other tables. Do you want to tell us a little bit mm-hmm. about uh, that, that side of the siege or the, that high part of the siege? <laughs> Um, that was a pretty interesting one. So I can't remember what we kind of modified in that one, but basically as models were dying or as units were dying, they were affecting tables below, um, depending on which quadrant of the board that we were dying in. So unfortunately for Adam, I kept dropping a lot of my dead models on top of him. And by that, I mean, Mark was, but, um, unfortunately wasn't helping anybody else that much. Uh, but it was a really interesting mechanic and, it, it kind of breaks a lot of the rules of, of just general gameplay because you're you're affecting another table immediately in most cases, I think is how the ruling on that was, and that's how we kind of played it, which meant that it could be the middle of the um, the death turn, and, you know, it could be in the middle of his turn, he's in the middle of movement, and it's like, all right, we're going to drop this on you, and, you know, you just kind of have to deal with it there and see what happens. So that was pretty interesting, um, you know, but, I mean, you know, in a competitive environment that wouldn't, you know, that just wouldn't kind of fit in well. So it's just a really nice change of pace. Nice. Yeah. I, one of the, another kind of, uh, you know, trying to emulate or look at those other things, um, being able to move across tables or affect other people's games is definitely one of those things that, you know, that you're in, a, you know, you, you know, you might be narrative if, um, <laughs> you know, you can <laughs> throw a model on somebody else's table and get away with it. Um, so I, I'm glad you enjoyed that one. Um, uh, and so the so we had a number of uh, you know really cool stories from that that, that second stage, the siege stage, um, and then it, that took us into um, the final stage, and that was into the inner keep, into the ritual. We had four tables set up, each with its own a pillar, one for each of the grand alliances, and rather than having a bunch of monks you know praying on this ritual. Uh, we just had these towers that needed to stand representing the the balance, um, and so then uh, each of the teams got to uh, the warlords got to deploy their forces on these different tables, and in the hopes of either, uh, in the case of uh, Tanya's group, toppling everything but the death statue, um, and in the case of um, uh, the the defending group, uh, that try and keep as many of them standing as possible, more than one. Right, or at least that was the warlord's uh, goal. Brandon, can you tell me the defending warlord's name again? Uh, Dave. Dave. Uh, thank you, Dave, for being the other warlord. That was fantastic, and he had fantastic attitude. Um, and so Dave's goal was to keep more than one. Uh, and then, if anything, if if Tanya was able to uh, topple everything but the death uh, statue, then she would have won for her. Uh, her that was her objective for the whole game, for the whole event. His was to keep more than one up, um, but it was in such a way that I mean, in what going into the third round, I had no clue what was going to happen um, because it seemed like there were some forces moving, 
to uh, perhaps so you know um, to perhaps maybe oh well, I'll let you guys maybe tell me what were you guys thinking was going to happen going into the third round where you had four tables four towers you're putting people out there you didn't know exactly where the you know where loyalties lied at this point it's 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 go time what were some of the predictions you guys had going into the third round I I was counting on Isaiah to betray everybody ooh. He pretty much did. Yep. Yeah. He pretty much did. It was great. Pretty much did. He kind of ruined that one right from right away. Go. He he even told me. He's like, "All right, here's my plan." I'm like, okay, well, there goes our plan. <laughs> well, <laughs> luckily, we had an apocalypse plan. Like we had a our backup plan was just anarchy. Yeah. So, true. Uh, so I'll take a moment here to explain why Isaiah acted the way he did. Um, so Isaiah well, had... well, before you do that, I want to I want to get see if there's any other ones because um, the other thing to mention too is that if the if the tower on the table you were on toppled, you got to move immediately to one of the other tables. So that was where some of the chaos uh, happened. That you could then des- decide to go to a different table to either help or harm uh, that that tower. Um, so uh, Brenda, did you have any you know predictions uh, about you know like? Who was going to stay loyal? Was there anybody on your team that you thought was going to be disruptive? Um, so I had some I had some inside information on this one because I was part of the TO and planning committee. Um, I yep. I thought for sure in game three, Trunzo was just going to screw everybody. <laughs> um, be, because to a certain extent, that is what he had shared with uh, with you and I, Eric. And I had to I'd yeah. do my best throughout the day to to separate what Brendan knew. Versus what the you know what I as a yeah. as an event player knew, um, including <laughs> also, things in the in, in the pack and and all that type of stuff. Yeah. Also, well done. Yeah, thank you. So, <laughs> I apparently can fake being an idiot. Uh, <laughs> um, Tanya, did you also think Tanya that uh, Trenzo was going to ruin everything and and take out everything, but or kind of help destroy the Death Tower? Did you have any? As the warlord putting him on some other tables, did, you, did that factor into your strategy on where you put him? Well, I I made sure not to put him on the death table, yeah, because I still had doubts. Um, I didn't necessarily think he was going to completely screw us over, but at that point, because he he'd done pretty well before that, I guess it sounds like he was still kind of plotting before that. Um, but once once you get to that last round, okay, if death tower falls, then we are not successful. So I didn't really want to take that chance. Um, yeah. I think I put him on. Did I put him on the chaos table? I think I did. You put him on the beast table. The beast oh, destruction table. Destruction. Yep. Sorry. Okay. okay. So, yeah. So you. So you definitely had some, some trust issues with the rats. Still, <laughs> I did. Um, especially after you'd, because because you were worried about him stabbing you back, and then but then all of your death stuff fell on his uh, artillery in the second round. And you thought maybe that exacerbated his loyalty or his disloyalties. Um, I mean, and and narratively, I mean, he was scheming. There was there was things in his um, story that he was interested in, and and I, I'll be honest, the GMs uh, get, tr- tried to feed that fire a little bit. Uh, we prepared to allow the maximum amount of nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> How about on the, on the uh, defending team? Uh, well. Before, was there anybody other than Isaiah that there was a concern about? I don't think so. The The destruction player was pretty much 
Well, so so what's important here is whatever you lost in game two was gone and was not available to you in game three unless you got you know, tabled and then you got you know 500 points worth of stuff so that you, you could in fact play. So the the Deepkin player was manhandled in game two by some sort of nefarious tournament player of sorts. <laughs> um, you were offended by those uh, Deepkin, weren't you? Oh, I've, uh, I, I understand that that is basically the entirety of his collection. And so I was, <laughs> I was a little less annoyed about the, about facing down something so, uh, so tooled up as that. Yeah, because it it's what you own. <laughs> like uh, I will I will get over it, um, but maybe a little bit of kindness left my heart in that game, <laughs> um, and so I I left him with a single model, and uh... Uh, and the TOs ruled that uh, <laughs> yeah, I know should, that he gets more than a single model in game three. But was, in any so case, you're, you're saying you punished him. It was karma. Yeah, I'm a. Um, I deep down very much uh, appreciate Nagash's uh, mindset and methodology to uh, <laughs> those types of things. So in, in any case... Leave a survivor uh, to tell the rest. Exactly. Tell them what happened to you today. Well, in, in that particular battle, I know that Zach, uh, Lan, the other uh, GM that was with us, hey, Zach, um, had given him um, some boons to get out of the walls or get to, to leave the walls and come after you. I think uh, I don't know if if that would have changed if he had stayed inside, uh, if if uh, that would have changed the outcome. Um, but uh, I know we we're trying to move that one along after a couple of rounds. Well, there was also an interesting thing where uh, Brendan had uh, a night haunt character in his army. I did. How did that happen? So, so my my army's narrative was the reason I was here was my general was sent by, you know, so Nagash put out the put out the all call and Neff was like, nah, I ain't going on my own. I'll I'll send one of my lieutenants. And so she picked one of her lieutenants uh, who was who was on the short list to be the Mortark of Grief and obviously didn't make the cut. So um, my general was there specifically to uh, try and claim the knowledge of all things so that Nagash would be like Oh, dope. I made a mistake. You're in charge of Night Haunt now. Um, and so she is able to hold some sway over, um, over Night Haunt's uh, aligned things. Um, so there was a Lord Executioner in my army that my character believed was under her control. But after finding out like what Paul's narrative was, I went up to him before the event and said... Um, my general doesn't know, but Lady Olinder is actually the one in control of this model. So you can come over to my game and you can make decisions for that model. And I have to, I have to accept your ruling. Um, so Paul tried to send the Lord Executioner to his death for some reason. <laughs> well, no, I was, I was fulfilling my objective with your model, which was to get to the, to the ritual itself. So I was sending him forward to be able to enter the monastery, to be able to join with my forces, to be able it was to... Prom- promptly mauled by Morsar Guard. <laughs> well, which worked to your advantage, because as soon as they came out, you were like, oh, look, I have things to kill. I'm going True. to slaughter all of them, but one. <laughs> Brendan. I, I, left, I left the Tidecaster, yes. <laughs> <laughs> that is impressive, Brendan, to uh, not... So, so far, 
you've you've held knowledge back. You've uh, brought you brought a softer list than what you might to another event, and you gave control of an entire model to somebody else in the in the in the event. That's yes. pretty well, weird, my friend. It was not even a single model, but there was also a dice roll of whether or not I could take control of an entire unit as well. Whoa! Yeah, yeah. It was a. It was a. What did we call it? A will check. Yeah. Uh, awesome. Because according to the background, the, the the hero model itself actually controls the rest of the Nighthawk. They're given uh, control over them. So there was a will check as to whether or not the unit would follow the character or would follow the potential Mortark of Grief, which I did not pass, unfortunately. So, <laughs> right, like, so the Lord Executioner got sent to his death. <laughs> yeah. He just wanted to kill things. He just wanted to get into the ritual itself. So. so, so tell us a little bit about Isaiah's. Um, uh, he had the brass stampede, and yeah. he had come away from round two unscathed. So he had his entire thousand point army, pretty much. When fifteen hundred points, fifteen hundred. Yeah, other people had other people had five hundred. Some still had, you know, maybe eight fifty. Um, but he was coming uh, whole hog. Um, tell us about Paul. You said you had inside info. Yeah. So his narrative uh, was that he had the brass stampede. Uh, and and a bloodthirster. So he had like what, like eighteen blood crushers, a bloodthirster, and then a hero on a blood, uh, blood a hero blood crusher, um, and that hero had actually been turned by Zinch. So he was corn and fighting for corn, uh, but Zinch had been able to manipulate his mind, and Zinch had decided that instead of trying to obliterate and defend. He actually wanted to try and corrupt this ritual, obviously, because he wants the knowledge from the knowledge of all things. And so the reason why I was offered the truce was because the hero was like, look, this doesn't further my purposes. I want to go disrupt the ritual. So we were actually part of the same side. Nice. Uh, which then played out as soon as we started playing the third scenario with the different little pillars. So Isaiah got put on the death table as well. Now, mm -hmm. and uh, he was put as a defender because he was on the defending team. So he got to set up all around that death tower. Mm -hmm. But Tanya, as the attacker, you wanted also you wanted to defend that tower, right? But what happened? Uh, turns out that uh, Isaiah just wanted to destroy that tower and keep chaos alive, kind of. So <laughs> the death tower went down pretty quickly. Do you wish you had some rats with you about that? <laughs> uh, hard to say. I don't know that they wouldn't have done the exact same thing. So, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, that was a tough one because that was that was your main objective. Um, obviously, you know, being on the you were kind of on the back foot, not having that uh, seventh player um, to be able to spread around because you needed to you know, had the harder goal of trying to take down all the other ones and have that one standing. Um, and, and then to be solo on the table with the, the player with the most points, uh, or not points. I mean, most bodies and right. the largest yeah, army. The strongest force. Strongest force. Uh, that one went down quickly and you both immediately uh, teleported elsewhere. Um, and you went over to the chaos table because the, the order table also fell, right? Shortly uh, after, yes. yeah. Who, who knocked over the order one? Uh, Paul and I. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. So you guys, and so you're, you're, you're in the attacking force. You know you got to knock down some pillars. You guys did your job. Well done. 
did that yeah, yeah. did that feel good to accomplish a narrative goal or a part of the narrative goal? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And then where did so Tanya? You went over to the um, chaos table then to try and uh, help Christian over there, who was was a little uh, he was on his own, right? Right, and I think he was getting uh, kind of the rough end of the bloodthirster deal. Yeah, yeah, because there were still three bloodthirsters on that table, I think. So the chaos, the chaos tower was very well defended by mm. chaos. You had uh, the the bloodthirsters, and you had Kenny's uh, beast army, um, mm. and uh, he was he was you know uh, was doing well over there. Um, his uh, what was his character's name? He was just holding stuff up. Um, oh, guy who holds the, the wall. Oh shoot. <laughs> I'll uh, I'll look it up in a minute, but uh, um, so we had uh, and then so then uh, Brendan, where did you go after that? Uh, I went to the destruction table, and hmm. so what I spoke about at the beginning, where we kind of in our group maybe get after each other a little bit in our narrative <laughs> events. Yeah. Uh, Isaiah immediately went to zoning out the entire table so that I would be unable to deploy because of the initiative roll made. Um, well, which was an interesting ploy because according to his narrative, he was supposed to go protect the chaos pillar, but he went to the destruction one instead. Yes. Yes, he did. Well, yeah. He was going to go to the chaos one and then we said no because there were already two players there or not. Oh, yeah, I think I that was. Okay. There was definitely there was definitely um, trying to find a way to let people play on, on multiple people on one table, but have enough room uh, was definitely not not maybe not as well planned or at least uh, I guess balanced out. We had everybody you know a lot of people drop down to you know five hundred points or whatever, so that made it easier. Uh, but certainly with his fifteen hundred, uh, so that was one of those points where you're kind of making a balanced decision over a narrative decision maybe. Um, but, and so, yeah, we definitely said, Hey, you know, so that it doesn't cause anybody to not have any fun and be able to play at all. Why don't you stay on this side of the table to deploy? Um, I suppose equally we could have, you know, had it come, you know, whatever side the death table was on, you know, go to the closest side or something like that. Um, that said, I was sure he was going to come in because the order table is down, the order tower is down, the death tower is down. And he was the biggest force on uh, the destruction table. I was certain he was going to come in and just crush that. So what stopped it? What what Anybody? stopped him from wrecking face on the destruction table? Yeah, a singular goblin. <laughs> <laughs> so he was definitely going in to crush the destruction tower in order to leave because chaos. The chaos tower was not going anywhere. Um, I, we tried, so Kenny Lull, we tried as GMs to give him some incentive to maybe knock that tower down because uh, it had a lot of wounds off of it uh, but wasn't quite dead yet. And he had Kershmash sitting there holding it up. Uh, uh, that was his name. Yeah. <laughs> and so we were like, Kenny, if you know, hey, there's, there's a name in it for you or something to that effect. Uh, but he stayed loyal. And so the, the, chaos, t- so the chaos Tower stood. And so Isaiah went to try and charge the destruction tower and take it down. Is that right? I think so. I, but he, but he I was packing my stuff up because I was already, <laughs> I was already done. <laughs> yeah. I, I think you're right. And, and he, couldn't, um, he couldn't get it in because of the placement of a squib gaba um, because it was just positioned in such a way that he couldn't get the bloodthirster in 
in order to smash down that tower. Because the Squid Gaba wasn't his enemy, right? Correct. They were on. Uh, no, the Squid Gaba was Christians, right? No, the Squid Gaba was. Yeah. Um, <sighs> I'm blanking on his name. It makes me feel bad because he helped with coalescence. Um, uh, but no, it was not. Uh, it was another player um, who was playing an all Squig Force. So they were on the same side, so he couldn't place it within a certain okay. distance because it wasn't an enemy, right? What, or, or because it was an enemy. So if your allies were not friendly models. Yes. So everyone was considered not... They weren't an enemy, but they were not friendly. Um, uh, and so you couldn't... Uh, Matt, you Matt Kilshaning, sorry. That's his name. Matt. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so, but so if he di- didn't charge him, so that may have been an un- unclear thing. But yeah, he couldn't come within three inches um, uh, in his movement, and so I think he f- he must have failed the charge after that. Yeah. Um, so so yeah. he didn't destroy the tower, and by by the the power of a single squid gaba, two towers stood, and uh, Dave's uh, defending alliance was able to maintain the balance. Um, and uh, the ritual was was reinstated. Uh, the death uh, attackers and any uh, any foul, treacherous uh, uh, generals were escorted out of the monastery, and the coat remained uh, safe, undisturbed, and unknown uh, for the foreseeable future until the, perhaps the next millennium passes. And I was so disappointed that the Gaba did not ascend to godhood. I was like, that would be the most amazing thing ever. So you just, you just needed the chaos tower to fall. That's all. That's all we needed to happen. And I was, I was begging Kenny to attack the stupid chaos tower. I even yeah. chose not to attack him. He was, but he was playing in chaos force. He no reason to. Well, and yep. and here's the other so thing. Fine. Well, and we'll get to that in the awards and stuff like that. So, so yeah. So what did happen though? The squid gaba, uh, Gork or sorry, Mork did reach down and touch the squid gaba, and it gave it, uh, I think, a single word. Like the knowledge of a single word, which allowed it to, to ascend to hero status. Mm-hmm. So if that squid gaba ever appears in another uh, narrative event, it will count as a hero. Does it get a hero on the back of it? I think it is a hero. Yeah, it gains the hero keyword. It gains the All hero right. keyword. So it, it not godhood, but for a squid gaba, it's pretty yeah. good. For it's me, the most, what are most intelligent squid gaba. He's a he's a hero in my book, that's for sure. <laughs> Brendan, find out what the most broken artifact you could put on that squid goblet. <laughs> oh yeah, no problem. I got this for you guys. <laughs> well, don't tell us. You can tell Matt, and he can use that next time. <laughs> yeah, for next time. Yep, yep. Well, when the when the goblin book comes out, it might make the choice obvious. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm sure they'll fix that thing. Uh, <laughs> So and that's and that's how we ended the event. Um, defenders were successful, but barely. Um, uh, one of the, how did you guys feel that ending was? Uh, did that did that cap the story? Did it um, fit what your expectations were? Was it fulfilling in any way? I, I definitely think it was fulfilling. Um, I think it fulfilled my expectations as well. I was disappointed that we did not disrupt the ritual. We were so close. Just needed to tempt one more army to turn to the dark side. Because Isaiah turned to the dark side, and then the Deepkin player also turned to the dark side and was attacking the Chaos Totem. So you just needed one more player to turn, and we couldn't get it. It was so His name was Kenny. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. His name was Smash. And And Chris Smash just wanted to hold up that pillar. 
And I was like, no, no. please. What a what a what a very specific narrative to take on for your army. This, <laughs> this, this, but it held so true. Up. Yeah, I just Well, and and uh, so that takes us to some of the awards. Um, unfortunately, in all the the chaos, uh, we didn't get pictures and re- records of all the awards that we gave out. So the for all of you that are holding a, a trophy from All Hallows Siege. That is your uh, basically ID or uh, proof of of narrative that uh, you have that um, uh, title and and Kersmash, uh gained the title Kersmash the Steady and was awarded a a trophy because every single wall he stood next to stood stayed standing in all three games uh, <laughs> he would put Kersmash next to a wall and I believe in the second game it was literally either the only one or one of two walls that stayed uh, upright. Uh, so all that. you had to do was magically make a piece of wall appear on the other side of Kersmash, and we would have won. That's what I'm hearing. No, <laughs> you just needed to kill Kersmash first. Well, I wasn't and, that, and that tower Pri- would have gone down. Prioritize your targets. Yeah, yeah. So if you didn't believe... The problem was is you didn't believe in Kersmash. Uh, well, the problem and- was I was too busy pinning the Bloodthirster in, in place with my Nighthaunt to attack Kersmash. Tanya, what were your thoughts on that ending? Disappointed? Um, I mean, I guess I was disappointed about the outcome, but not really disappointed about how it ended. You know, from a narrative perspective. I would, Brendan. How about you? Um, I I was very glad that we were able to set off the uh, apocalypse program after <laughs> uh, obviously our plan going awry early changed my expectations of. Uh, of the third round yeah. to uh, to burn it down, which is a uh, maybe a theme in my tournament behavior. <laughs> <laughs> and I was I was glad that we were able to stop Isaiah and his clearly nefarious plans to uh, to take control of the of the knowledge of all things. I would I would rather see it maintained than have it fall into the hands of chaos. But yeah. a but a gaba god, like how amazing would that have been? <laughs> Hey, that's yeah. so amazing. Maybe that's yeah, a deal for another story. Well, yes. and, and and the other thing was that the chaos tower, it came down to one wound. Yeah. We couldn't inflict one more wound on it. Otherwise it would have fallen. We tried. We tried so hard. As as chaotic as that last stage was, I felt like people were more connected about what was going on at the different tables and what was at stake than they ha- than we had been at the previous um Mm-hmm. Uh, two stages, and some of that, uh, you know, I had I had some high hopes of of pre-event prep and conversations and lore releases and and stuff like that to help with some of those kind of what are the stakes, what what should our strategies be, maybe uh, you know, and getting to you know, Brendan, you know, some of that crunchiness, like knowing ahead of time what should I be planning for, should I get more skirmish in there, should I plan for you know more artillery etc like some of that stuff um but i feel like we got there um and 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 despite a a couple of points where there could have been kind of like you know frustration um everybody kind of gelled around the point of the event which was to embrace whatever happens happens aim for what you want to have happen try you put your army towards that and see if you can change the outcome. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. So I was, I was, I was mostly impressed with 
everybody coming together and, and within the span of three day, three, three scenarios, um, you know, <laughs> three, days, three scenarios, really getting it, like uh, being, being narrative um, and, and enjoying it. Um, Cause not everybody there had done that before. So there's no guarantee that anybody was, that everybody was going to like it, enjoy themselves. And, and uh, when we got to the awards ceremony, it felt like everybody was in really good spirits. Um, some of the awards, I heard a quiet, I didn't hear any agreement there. No, I agree with you hundred <laughs> percent. I nodded. Okay. Well, nobody verbal agreement. <laughs> nobody I'm, I'm eating chips, so I didn't want you to hear that. <laughs> uh, crunch, Are they good chips? Bad chips? affirmation. Uh, I'd say they're good, but it doesn't make good radio. So, Aaron, you've been quiet this whole time because you you were not a player and you weren't a GM, but you were uh, one of the backbones of uh, this thing going off. Um, You're just saying that because you didn't want to paint the awards. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, if it wasn't for you. Uh, we would have no awards. Um, what What was your some of your opinions of the day as we're going through all that, seeing the chaos, et cetera? Um, well, chaos is a good way, good way to put it. Uh, no, I think it was a, a great example <laughs> of um, a narrative event. I don't know that I've ever seen one. I, I feel like I, I get sort of s steeped into the quote-unquote narrative side of things, but only because of my interest in terms of the background and lore and, and less about like the games themselves. So I think it was a good um, translation of the of the lore and the background and the narrative uh, that, that I like and seeing it sort of transposed onto the, the table um, for sure. Uh, a lot of, a lot of, I'm not going to say backstabbing because in the end results, like balance was restored. So how much backstabbing could there possibly have been? Um, but <laughs> it, just to see the different interplay between the, uh, the different teams versus what individuals uh, goals were, 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 was fun to see played out. Um, in terms of the ending, I'm, I'm, I prefer to have that balance, uh, restored or maintained um, i didn't necessarily want to see the monastery go out of whack because i i have a soft spot for some sort of level of order um also cool. a rules follower also a rules follower that's for sure uh i gotta have that balance i gotta have some sort of pattern uh, in place um so no it was, it was great to be a witness and to be able to be involved in uh, what level i could be and uh maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves but i look forward to What's coming next? Well, and I, let's uh, let's end this. I've got a couple more questions, um, and then I want to end on kind of where do we think this could go next? Um, a couple of the um, trophies or, or awards that went out, um, Kenny had racked up four of them. Uh, Kenny got the award for Kenny Lowe got the award for uh, was voted as the best uh, narrative army. Uh, he got Kenny narrative at all cost uh, NAAC. Ker Smash the steady. Um, Kenny the Rock, I believe he, uh, um, gosh, was that for uh, smashing those? That didn't, didn't go for smashing those walls. No, um, wasn't it just? It wasn't just holding the walls, or? Uh, no, that was smash the steady. I thought there was a different one for. Oh no, he was he th was throwing rocks from the the ramparts, wasn't that it? Oh, oh uh, yeah, that's what it was. Yeah, Sigor, yeah, Sigor, yeah, yeah. He used that that yep, and then or squashy dead eye. That was for that Sigor was the the best artillery. I let him. I let him use his uh, Cygor as an artillery piece, standing on the top of the wall, throwing rocks. Uh, and so he I mean, killed the most things. I I don't know. Um, and then uh, I saw a couple of more. Um, let's see. Well, Christian uh, Ware uh, yes. won the award for uh, most favorite army. He had an awesome army because he was doing all beasts. Yes. So he didn't have any actual like humans or elves or dwarves in his army. It was all just a ton of beasts. It was awesome. Yeah, he got. Yeah. Sorry, Kenny got the the most narrative um, 
Christian got the best army. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we we have not done Christian's army justice on this on this podcast. <laughs> Tell <laughs> a little bit about it. Yeah, he so he sent. I think it was he sent me a message on Twitter. Uh, you know, slipped into my DMs and he's like, "Hey, what do you think about this?" Um, you know, a riderless dragon, a riderless phoenix, you know, some salamanders. Uh, I don't, I think he might have had uh, riderless great eagles and then he had a, a shaman. All this led by a singular shaman. He's like, what do you think about this? Like things pulled across three grand alliances. <laughs> well, I, remember, oh. I remember reading that desire to bring that many monsters. I was like, oh, is he playing for, is he trying to be gamey? Is he trying to... <laughs> <laughs> no, he literally just wanted to be the one to demolish the most walls, and he yeah. won that award too. Uh, Black Hoof, <laughs> the demolisher, um, uh, and then he was the first one, I think, uh, through the wall when it came to demolishing. Uh, so, uh, um, yeah, he was he threw it all in, um, had a cool army full of beasts, and it was a lot of fun. Um, so, uh, Brendan, I want to I wanted to ask you one question in terms okay. of. Uh, you so you've run one, two, th- couple of of. Uh, I've run some tournaments. You've run yeah. some tournaments. Uh, the amount of prep work, the amount of setup, the amount of execution. How would you compare a match play event to a narrative event? Um, so I feel bad in all of this because I don't think I contributed as much as I would have liked to. I got tied up in quite a bit of work leading up in like the prior month to this event. So. Um, I did too, by the way. Yeah. So we were, we were both a little uh, uh, quiet. And then uh, that last week, like I think I wrote a quarter of the pack that last uh, <laughs> night and a half. Don't, uh, don't tell them. Oh, that. yeah, yeah. No, that's, no. That's, don't for tell what, them how the sausage For what it's worth, I didn't have any work. I didn't contribute it, and I don't feel bad at all. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think it is quite a bit more work because of what it was that we were trying to do in developing uh, three, three unique phases. And so what it was, five unique missions across the three... Uh, I guess it's technically six because the Sky game was its own thing. Yeah. Um, six unique missions and having to do that dev work is, is a lot more difficult than me going into my book and saying, all right, I have to pick five games. How are they going to be played? In what order? In what realm? And how do I do it where... This is going to be something interesting and engaging for the players, but will not overly negatively impact the play experience of the of the people in the room in terms of de- in terms of determining a a quote unquote true winner of the event. Um, so so in that regard, I'd say it was quite a bit more difficult. It's you know it was a little bit more of a difficult sell to people to to sign up for the event. I think just because. It's it's difficult. It's a it's a difficult concept to to get your arms around for for a lot of folks. It's easy for me to turn to somebody and say, uh, "Yeah, we're having a tournament. Uh, one day, a thousand points. Uh, show up this day. It's five dollars. Easy. Everybody knows what they're getting into." I think it was a lot more difficult to say. So I need you to make a one thousand, a fifteen hundred, a two thousand point list, a sixty point skirmish. Also. <laughs> Also, it's narrative, so don't bring like your tough as nail stuff. Like, actually, come with some some intention to explain why it is you brought what it is that you brought, and be prepared to you know make some on the fly decisions. 
and uh, it's ten dollars, and it's in Madison. And uh, no, we've never run anything like this before, so you just got to trust me. <laughs> and also, you have no idea what the last scenario is, so just be prepared for something. Right, something you've never played before. Uh, yeah, that's gonna happen. Well, I think it's a testament to one that you know, Games Workshop has certainly written a core game with some core um, scenarios and kind of um, an objective play style that one out of the box is, is easy and fun to run. And everyone has a central expectation of that. And then at the same time to, uh, from my standpoint, be able to take those models and tweak them sometimes a little bit, sometimes a lot in order to build these custom things. Right. Um, and certainly some of the, the goals were ambitious. And so what we were trying to do was, you know, kind of break out of the norms and, and I wasn't always, I probably wasn't always cognizant of whether or not something was too far um, for the group we were doing. Uh, when we wrote Coalescence, we tried to make it narrative light, like take match play and just add a couple of very light rules to make it more narrative. This, I was like, whatever, just narrative balls of the wall. Um, you know, so it's, I, you know, I definitely wasn't sure if people would bought into it and, and uh, was happily surprised. Um, so, are we going to do more narrative here in the Midwest, guys and gal? I'd like to. I think. Yeah. I think it. I think it went well. We think. Yeah, you I, think I, go ahead. I was going to say. I just. Uh, I think it'd be great to see more of it. We just don't do nearly enough of it right now. We're so tournament focused, and although we have a really great group of players, I, I think they could branch out a little more and have a really good time looking at it from a different angle. So where do you guys think the story should go next? Should we continue on the story? Do we, is, there, is there a hook to play off of? Uh, or is there something else that you guys would like to explore narratively? Well, I think, I think the knowledge of all things ended up resolving itself on its own um, in that balance was maintained and coming back to it in a millennia, I don't know necessarily does us any good uh, in, terms of, in terms of it being compelling yeah, uh, you know, some of our heroes may still be may still be in play. Uh, you know, maybe maybe this in some way has bound all of their fates together in some way, shape, or form. But I know this is something that you and I kicked around in the in the ideation phase of you know of stuff. What about a sea battle? You know, next time <laughs> it'd be pretty amazing. Naval Warhammer. I think uh, maybe we'll call it uh, Fear Boats or something like that. <laughs> I'm already a big fan. Oh. Well, I know I know Nova has. Uh, we've seen some big pictures of them doing uh, big boats and stuff. I think we could do better, right? Obviously. <laughs> um, Careful with your callouts. <laughs> I know those guys. I know no Brian and and Aaron. They they they're gonna like the challenge. That just because you're gonna see next year is gonna be like full life size one to one scale. Oh <laughs> lord. Um, no, that would. I I think there's room like. There's there's room to explore a lot of different things before set you know we don't need to settle on any one uh, story or even one mode of play right yeah I think narratively it'd be interesting if that uh, Gaba set up its own monastery uh, instruction based uh, and had a whole scenario based around that specific situation as that disrupts the you just want him to be worshipped so he reaches godhood well it's an interesting thing because we don't have it in the background. Yeah. It's an interesting narrative hook that is a direct play of what happened during the event. So I think that'd be a really interesting yeah. story. Let's put it that way. Any thoughts from you, Aaron? Well, I don't know. Are the monks going to forget the actions that like uh, Isaiah did 
in, in tackling those towers. Like, there, there is a place. Um, I don't know. I feel like that that's got some room to explore a little bit. A hitman uh, type thing. Yeah, yeah. Do we go? Do we go to his house? Hunters. Yeah, exactly. Like a narrative event in his house, whether he likes it or not. <laughs> 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 we show up with little monk, monk miniatures. We're here. Yeah, we're here. Oh, yeah, that's a horror movie waiting to happen. Um, <laughs> so that's what everybody needs to dress up that time, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. dress up that time. That's It'll sure. still just be Davy. Davy, we're all gonna dress up. <laughs> any, any. Uh, you and I talked a little bit about uh, skirmish. Uh, doing a skirmish event. Any uh, specific wish listing you'd have for a narrative event? Uh, skirmish stuff. Uh, I think it's really interesting because I've been struggling with that whole system to try and kind of pull in any kind of narrative or growing escalation storyline anything. Um, so I guess I haven't really gotten very far on that idea, but it even becomes just challenging with skirmish to deal with some of the points. You start to look at certain things that you can get in certain armies at certain levels, and you just start to hit a wall almost. I mean, looking at the game that I played with Dave in round one, um, we were doing, what, 60 points? Yeah. 60 renown. And, you know, I brought, I, I, I mean, granted, I had two heroes, one cheaper, one more expensive, but I fought against, I don't know, three or four Blight Kings uh, and a hero and uh, some Plague Bearers, oh. which is definitely a, a weird balance there between the two points-wise. So it gets kind of yeah. bizarre. So I've been trying to actually toying around with trying to find some way to generate a really odd um, kind of randomly generated skirmish list. Yeah. But uh, the points is where it kind of keeps hitting a wall. Yeah. Well, you know, you had mentioned that. And as I was uh, typing up notes for this and I've, I've uh, had that one scenario, that tunneling scenario stuck in my head uh, again, because it had that mechanic where if you ran by a, a terrain, and you set off the kind of crumbling, you would mm. pick up that tile, you'd turn it uh, 90 degrees, and it would change the face of the map. Um, uh, and then the the narrative stuff that I have done uh, for these guys, these yahoos... Um, better. Better word. I like uh, it. <laughs> sorry. Um, <laughs> has, been a, has been a GM-led um, skirmish campaign that lets them... T- like multiple people taking war bands to be cooperative competitive. Um, and uh, so we've had some, I think some successes with that in terms of, um, you know, kind of scaling, not necessarily all scaling at the same time, not always against each other, not always, you know, with each other, different objectives, that sort of thing. And I think there could be a story where um, some war bands try and go down into the mountain where the co-ed is, but maybe that's just the, kind of a, a side narrative kind of guilty pleasure kind of thing. I feel like there was something you released about skirmish, Eric. What was it? What was it called? Well, I didn't want to plug that again, tooting horns. Uh, so I, I put together a pack, uh, kind of a, a, a supplement called renown and ruin, which is uh, basically the rules to GM leading a group of adventurers with war bands, skirmish war bands. Uh, I'll, I'll send it to you, Tanya. You can tell me what you think. Yeah, definitely. Um, can be found on themoralrealms.com. It absolutely can be. Wow, I think you might be able to find it other places too. It's weird. We don't want them to find it other places, Paul. <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> this is how marketing works. Dang it. 
All right. Um, any so last thing, is there anything that you'd want to do different uh to change or uh do you love every minute of it? It's a loaded so, question. Did uh so this is just a question for me. Did do you get a lot of the narrative up front from people or kind of the day of? I think mostly day of, uh, and there wasn't enough time between getting it and playing or getting set up to read it all. Gotcha. Because I think we probably could have tried to tie the storylines together or, you know, as, as monks try to bring two people together with a similar goal or how their stories would already try to intertwine without them necessarily knowing it up front. Um, which I don't think we got quite that opportunity this year with people trying to uh, kind of turn it in narrative at the end there, things getting ramped up kind of right before the event. Yep. Yeah. I, I, I've had a problem with that with Jibbering Dome as well. Uh, trying to get people to contribute beforehand so we can start to develop this narrative. I know I talked to a couple of Nova guys and like, it, it's kind of a constant problem where you're like, look, I want you guys to contribute so we can develop this narrative. But it's hard to understand and develop that urgency uh, when you're so far from the event. And in an ideal situation, like obviously you would have everybody's narrative and then weave that into what's going to happen and weave that into you're going to fight against this person because this narrative thing says this. And that's an interesting um, and unique thing about narrative gaming that I think is a little bit harder to be able to manage. Uh, you can't just show up on the day of and be like, I'm going to have this fully developed narrative and we're going to understand why I'm fighting versus you, right? Whereas right. in match play, it's like, well, I'm fighting you because we fight against each other, right? You don't have to have a narrative reason for playing. Um, so that's... I yeah, disagree. <laughs> you don't You don't have to have a narrative? You disagree? Correct. If you're going to play right. me, you do. Anyways, continue. Are, are you going to give any reasons or are you just going to disagree? <laughs> See, Brandon, we fight over narrative too. That's a little bit different. <laughs> we get into ma- we get into shouting matches. We can play. We can be mean. <laughs> is this is this the whole podcast? the The goal was to prove that you guys can also, you know, start start down as mean mugging no. people. Oh, we can man. narrative doesn't mean good guy. Narrative, uh, narrative means breaking the rules, man. Narrative yeah. Um. West Side Story. Any any last words? Anybody want to ha- pipe in or, or say contribute to anything else before we close out the episode? Um, in terms of changes, I'd like to see. I, I think uh, Tanya's feedback on this was really important that you know, we needed to make sure that we had equal numbers on both sides. That led to some uh, some functionality issues. I'm mm-hmm. most most of my concerns deal in functionality items, but that's things that you learn from you know events that you've never run before (laughs) it's one of those things that like i'd almost wish we could do it like exactly like not exactly the same i wish we could do it again like with the things that we've learned because i think we made some good decisions in terms of rule tweaks and things but like just having it like not a do-over but another opportunity to like smooth over some of that stuff um but i agree to come and run all all hello siege in your city uh, give Brendan a call and he will uh, get that set up for you and we'll all come I'll, visit I'll you. you. Yeah. We'll come and run it for you in your town. So you just you just let us know. <laughs> it's $10 per person though. There's another, there's an interesting thing here though that uh, in a narrative game, if you play a narrative game, playing it again doesn't necessarily have the same feeling, right? Whereas in match play, it's you can play the same missions over and over again and it's about balancing these different armies and um, so narrative presents its own challenge here where 
ideally, it'd be great to play this event again, but then you ask yourself the question, why would the players come again if they've already played this story? Because it's the experience itself that's kind of the unique selling point of the event. So it's interesting. To that, I'd only say is that you get a chance to change the story. So there, there's always a Groundhog's Day. Ooh. <laughs> uh, this is the event that always happens every year. Can you make a different outcome happen? Um, <laughs> but that, I, think, I think you're right. If you're running the same thing over and over, you read the same book, you know, nobody reads the same book twice. Nobody watches the same movie over and over. It's never once uh, happened in history. I've <laughs> never watched Star Wars more than 100 times. Uh, uh, but, it, you know, different people can experience the same set of uh, scenarios and have a different outcome and, and have a new experience. So, um, no, all of those taken to heart. Uh, Tanya, we're going to be uh, probably tapping you for, for, for more intel because uh, from out of the gate, I think you were the first one to, to throw your narrative down and uh, push it in people's face and be like, hey, I'm here to play. Uh, <laughs> and it was pretty awesome. So, um, all right. Well, let's, uh, it's time for our reforging. Where can, <laughs> where can our mortal readers... It's not that bad, actually. He loses <laughs> memories every time. <laughs> where can our mortal listeners find you, Yahoos? Uh, Davey had to go, but you can find him at red underscore Zeke. How about you, Aaron? Uh, I'm at, at dosesos. Paul? At PJ Shard. Brendan? At hobby underscore bear or at cubicshenanigans.net. Nice. Tanya, where can we talk, find you? Well, I'm the one that's not on Twitter, so you can find me uh, kind of in some of the Facebook groups I, I mull around in. Um, Holy Hammers, which I think is private. Uh, Bruce City Brawl, uh, Midwest Meltdown. There might be one or two other ones. Definitely the Age of Sigmar page. I see you commenting yes. and liking stuff there. Yes. And you can find me at Stone Monk Gamer on Twitter. Uh, you can find us anew on your favorite podcast app or on our website, themortalrealms.com, uh, at youtube.com slash themortalrealms, or on Twitter at themortalrealms, and of course on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash themortalrealms. We're everywhere. You are. Something a theme. <laughs> well, thank you guys all again, and we'll see you soon. Thank you.